we started something I think is very needful. Uh, has me a little bit like nervous. I was telling my wife like a, a like a systematic study of every book of the Bible. Uh, not a thorough study of every book of the Bible. Uh, not like you know six months on the book of Genesis. I'm gonna try to probably try to cover a book a night. Uh, and just give a base, you know, if the Lord stretches it out, I'll stretch it over a couple of weeks. But I just want to lay like a skim coat down and a basic foundation so you can begin to navigate your Bible and see how this amazing book is put together and get like a framework of all these different books and how some of the pieces fit. And then if the Lord allows us to have like another Discipleship 2 class, and maybe if the Lord tarries even an Institute class, that's where we go down deep and put our, you know, scuba gear on and like stay down for a long time. But for right now, if you would open to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, uh, that's where we'll begin in the great book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. Some have said every major doctrine of your Bible is traced back to the book of Genesis. Uh, It is the foundation of your Bible. It is the first book of your Bible. And so the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to start with some, you know, some vital statistics, I guess. Uh, And I would encourage you, um, I would encourage you, if you're really going to make a study of your Bible, uh, get yourself a wide margin Bible. Speak to my wife, Danielle, if you don't know what that is. And uh, put these things in your Bible, because everything I'm going to tell you tonight is written somewhere in different parts of my book of Genesis. So even if I didn't have my notes, I could just open up and, and have this stuff here. So that's my humble suggestion. But let's go through some of these basics here. So there are 50 chapters, all right? The book of beginnings, 50 chapters, 1,533 verses. I did count them. Uh, and uh, 38,262 words. I trusted several sources that all cross-referenced that, so I didn't count all the words, but I did get them from a bunch of people that are reliable and cross-checked them. But uh, why you say, why are you giving us all that? Because people are changing your Bible. And we want to know how many words are there, how many verses are there, how many chapters are supposed to be there. It is the first book of Moses, um, sometimes called the first book of the law, Sometimes called the first book of the Pentateuch, right? That's a big fancy word meaning the first five books. Right? A pentagon is a five-sided shape. A pentagram is a five-pointed star. And the Pentateuch is the five books of the law making up the first five books of your Bible. And uh, the real key phrase, idea that you want to remember about the book of Genesis is that it is the book of beginnings. It is the book of origins, We are going to reach back to Genesis and almost everything we believe and know about the Bible and God is going to have some kind of root in the book of Genesis. And just to show you how much it is a book of beginnings, uh, there are actually seven things that begin in Genesis. And I'm going to try to talk slower than I usually do, but I do record this for a reason, uh, that you can go back and look at it or listen to it. But seven things that begin in Genesis, heaven... Earth, animals, man, sin, redemption, and the messianic line of Christ. Those seven things are all beginning there in the book of Genesis, right? Seven things. And there's a lot of other sevens in the book of Genesis we'll touch on, but it's the book of beginnings. Look at Genesis 1.1. Let's, let's start at the beginning, which I heard is a very good place to start. Uh, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
That is one of the most amazing verses in all of the English language. If you can get that verse in your heart, the rest of the Bible is pretty easy. In that one verse, we see all the elements of science are present in that one verse. We've got time, the beginning. We've got force, God. We've got motion, He's creating. We've got space, heaven. And we've got matter, earth. I mean, everything that needs for the universe to function is brought into being right there in Genesis 1.1. And in Genesis 1.1, in the very first line of the Bible, God completely destroys almost all the philosophies of the world. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, destroys communism. It destroys atheism. It destroys Darwinism. It destroys mysticism. All the Hindus that thought, you know, we were just floating on the back of a turtle, swimming in a lake of milk out in the cosmos. It blows that out of the water. It destroys pantheism because it shows you that God is not His creation. He is separate from His creation. And it destroys existentialism, the idea that you're all alone and you make your own fate. No, it destroys all of that in a single verse. In the very first verse, God is laying such a groundwork. And that's our first book of Moses, the book of beginning. And then it continues. And I want you to notice that the Bible does not begin with a proof for God's existence. You see that? The Bible doesn't have any apologetic about God's existence. It assumes God's existence because the existence of the biblical God is a self-evident truth. It's as if to say, if you don't believe that, you are what the Bible says you are, a fool. Because only the fool would say in his heart, there is no God. And so the Lord just jumps right in and doesn't give like this long apologetic about cosmological arguments and teleological arguments and anthropological, anthropological arguments and all these big words that don't really help you. They just titillate your intellect. But God just jumps right in. So that's where we're going to jump right in. Uh, and the book of Exodus is, of course, the book of redemption. Right? This is when Israel is going to exit or leave Egypt, hence the book of Exodus. And then the book of Leviticus is a book of laws for the Levitical priesthood. These people that will bless you, that wanted to serve God. There was a manual for how to serve God after you came out of Egypt. And then the book of Numbers is a book of warfare, right? People that were going into the wilderness and were getting numbered for war, right? Hope you count. And uh, Deuteronomy is the book of the second law. That's what the book means, right? Deutero means second, and anomy is a law or a rule of something. So Deuteronomy is the book of the second rule or the second law. And the reason why I'm laying this all out, and we're going to do this from time to time, is here's what you got to see. The Bible is so amazing and so clearly inspired by God that even the way the books are laid out tell a story and teach a truth. And even the first five books of the law, the first five books of your Bible, lay out some things that God was doing. Watch it. God created you. He began something. You fell into bondage and he had to redeem you. 
and then he gave you a law, he gave you a manual for how to serve him as a believer priest, like those Levitical priests, and he sent you out into the wilderness to war and count for him and make it to the promised land, and one day you will come into your inheritance like that second generation that was going to come into their inheritance and praise God that he is the God of the second chances. Amen? Because when you wander in the wilderness, sometimes you wander a little too far, but thankfully he's the God of the second law and the second rule and the second chance. And I just, I did that really quick just to show you, and we'll see it more and more, that God's way of laying out the Bible actually is instructive. And we can't disregard that. We've got to follow and respect the way God lays out the Bible. Now, Genesis covers, uh, time-wise, approximately 4,000 B.C., the beginning, uh, to approximately 1570 B.C., if you're looking for like a time of what that covers. And if you go to Genesis 3.15, in every book of the Bible, we'll try to talk about how Jesus Christ is pictured. Because ultimately, the Bible is Jesus Christ in words, And Jesus would say, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And when you read your Bible, you should ultimately be looking for Jesus Christ in your Bible and what it shows you about Jesus Christ in your Bible. And Jesus Christ is pictured in the book of Genesis as the promised seed. The promised seed. Genesis 3.15, right there is our first messianic promise, right? Genesis 3.15, he tells Eve, I will put enmity, uh, uh, I mean the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed, because the devil has a seed, and her seed, that's a virgin birth being prophesied there, it, meaning the seed, shall bruise thy head, meaning the devil, uh, his, his antichrist will one day have, be bruised, that is his head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So the seed is really the theme of the book of Genesis because all life starts from a seed. So in the book of beginnings, we're going to have an emphasis on seed, And Jesus Christ is that seed that is running through that book that is going to be the beginning of all of God working. So now, I'm going to do something. I'm going to turn this around, and I won't erase it. And if you're watching from home, hey. All right. But um, here's a basic breakdown of the book, right? And I'm not going to... We're going to get some teaching in here. I I wrote a lot of stuff on here. I'm not going to just read it to you. But the basic breakdown, because every book of the Bible will have some natural breakdowns that you can remember. Genesis 1 to 11 and 12 to 50. The Bible just kind of cuts right there. The book of Genesis breaks down really easily right there. The first, I guess, what is that? 1 to 11, I call the principles. That's all about these foundational basic ideas, how God shows us the source and the origin of all things in those first 11 chapters. And then chapters 12 to 50 are really all about the patriarchs. And so if you could remember that one split, that one division, you'll understand your book of Genesis. 1 to 11, the principles. 12 to 50, the, uh, the patriarchs. So we see, let's go to Genesis chapter 2. So just looking underneath that, Chapters 1 and 2, I think you know you've got creation. Chapters 1 and 2 all deal with creation. And we obviously he does that in seven days. And I want you to see something in Genesis chapter 2. I want you to show you that in that creation week, God really establishes the number 7 as a premier number in the Bible, as really God's number for how he's going to do things and establish things. Genesis 2, verse 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished... And all the host of them, 
And on the seventh day, God made ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it, the seventh day, he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. So right there at the very beginning, if the book of Genesis is the book of foundations and origins, you'll hear people talk a lot about sevens in the Bible and sevens in numerology, and God really made the number seven special. He set that number seven apart. He set that seventh day apart. And uh, for example, I'll give you a few examples of sevens. Genesis as a creation week, or really what's a recreation week, which we'll mention, it takes seven days, right? And he takes clean animals onto the ark, and he does that by sevens. There were seven trees in the garden. There are seven pears in the book of Genesis. There are seven types of Christ in the book of Genesis. And we could go on and on and on. In just the book of Genesis, there are, there are a bunch of sevens. And I'm not, like I said, it's not exhaustive. I'm going to like be like a bunch of buckshot. I'm going to shoot a lot of stuff at you and grab what you can. And if you need to listen to it again, uh, you'll, you'll get it. Uh, and other things, it took seven years to build the temple. There are seven periods of church history. Uh, there are seven primary colors. There are seven notes in a musical scale. There are seven holes in your head. All right, some of you are counting. Right, All right. Some of you got an extra one, but that's something I can't help you with, right? So chapters 1 and 2 establish creation. Chapters 3 and 4 get into two of those pairs, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, right? Adam and Eve are a great picture of Christ and his church. Cain and Abel are a great picture of the lost and the saved, or the devil's way and God's way. And let's go to chapter 5. Let's jump into chapter 5 a little bit. Chapter 5 gets into... Uh, the genealogy of Adam. It's really interesting. Genesis 5.1. I'm like, I'm, I'm just throwing a lot at you, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to park on some things. Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Now, there are two books like that in your Bible. Genesis 5, and if you want to hold your place, go to Matthew 1.1. The Old Testament starts with the book of the generations of Adam, and everybody in that book dies. Right? Because as in Adam, all die. But the New Testament, Matthew 1 1, starts with another book, which is like the opposite of this book. Matthew 1 1, just hold your place in Genesis, but Matthew 1 1 is the book of the generation, singular, because there's only one way. There are many ways to die, but there's only one way to find life. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you notice in Matthew 1.1, it always talks about people being begotten, right? He begat this one, he begat this one, he begat this one. Why? Because in Christ, all shall be made alive. So everybody that follows Jesus Christ's book gets life. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 5, everybody that's listed in that chapter dies. Because as in Adam, all die, even so in Christ, shall all be made alive. You've got to get out of the book of Adam, and you've got to get into the Lamb's book of life. That's how you get saved, right? That's what God does for you. Genesis 5 starts to establish Adam's book as a book of death, Christ's book as a book of life. But keep going. Verse number 3 is another important thing in Genesis 5. It says, And Adam lived 130 years 
and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. That's a really important point to note because after the fall, man is born in Adam's fallen image. Please remember, the image is the spiritual aspect. The likeness is physical. The image is spiritual. When Adam sinned, he lost God's image, and he was dead in trespasses and sins, and now Seth is born in Adam's image. So when the person stands up there and says at the podium, we're all children of God, don't throw your shoe at them, but just know in your mind, that is not a true statement. We are not all children of God. We are all creations of God. We are children of God by faith in Jesus Christ when we get taken out of the book of Adam and put in the book of Jesus Christ. But we're born in Adam's fallen image, which is spiritually lost and dead in trespasses and sins. That's an important foundational truth. God doesn't get you past five chapters, and he's laying that out. And then 5.5 is another interesting verse. Five is the number of death. You say, how do we get that? Because in Genesis 5.5 is the first mention of someone dying by natural means. I know Cain's too able, but here in Genesis 5.5, the Bible says, In all the days that Adam lived with 930 years, and he died. And that starts to really establish and cement the number five as the number of death. And there's plenty of examples of that we've mentioned. All right, then we keep going a little bit. Genesis 6 to 9, we get into the flood. You want to think of it this way, right? God does his creation, right? We got creation here. Um, I won't write that. And then there's a fall that comes after that, right? In Genesis 3 and 4, we have the fall. And the fall is like God's probation to man. Man gets put on a little bit of probation. He said, can you handle this if I just let you live by your conscience? And when we get to the flood, it's like, no, you can't. It's like God's retribution, right? God says, no, here is the judgment now for all of your devilment and all of your wickedness. And Genesis chapter 10 gets us into Noah's genealogy. Let's look at Genesis 10.10, another interesting first mention in Genesis 10.10. Genesis 10, if you're putting... um, If you're putting headings in your Bible next to your chapters, Genesis 10 is sometimes called Noah's genealogy or the table of nations. And he basically starts tracing all of the descendants of Noah. And I want you to notice something very interesting. Genesis 10.10 is the first mention of the word kingdom in your Bible. And it's referring to a type of antichrist. It is a Gentile kingdom. Well, they're all Gentiles back then. But it is Babel, it is Nimrod's kingdom. And it says in Genesis 10.10, And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Aked, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. So right there we see the first glimpses of the Antichrist kingdom that he's going to establish on the earth in the book of Revelation. There is a type of Antichrist, Nimrod, who is establishing the first kingdom on earth. Because what is God doing, folks? What did we say last week? God is trying to establish a kingdom. So everything God does, the devil tries to imitate. So what does one of his guys do? Nimrod starts to try to establish his own kingdom, which we know is confusion and misery in the next chapter. Right? And Noah's kids all go different directions. Uh, Ham's and his boys, they go south into Africa. And those people, that actually continent of Africa is called in the Bible the land of Ham. Right? So those guys went down there. Shem went east, right? 
and that becomes Eurasiatic over there. Shem goes east into Asia, and Japheth, go west, young man, Japheth goes west into Europe, and so you start to see his descendants kind of filling in the whole world, but they leave that middle area, right? That middle area of the Middle East, they don't inhabit, right? Uh, Ham goes down, Shem goes east, Japheth goes west, because that middle land is really where the promised land was, and that land belongs to God, and that land was for God. And then Genesis chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. That's when God finally disperses everybody and gets them out of there. So that's really a quick overview of your first 11 chapters, which is all about the principles. How about the second half? The second half is about the patriarchs. And the patriarchs kind of go like this. There's a nice lesson in the patriarchs. The patriarchs are those founding people of the nation of Israel. We've got Abraham. You know what Abraham points to? Abraham points to God's call. You know what God does? God starts calling out to people like he calls out to Abram, right? You know what Isaac points to? Isaac points to God's birth. Isaac had a supernatural birth, and after God calls you, he wants to give you a supernatural birth. He's calling out to you so that you would be born again, right? Have a spiritual birth. Then he gets into Jacob. You know what Jacob shows us? Jacob shows us how much God cares for us how God's overseeing us, how God, even when we're going the wrong way, God is still watching out for us. And Joseph, the last of those real patriarchs, Joseph shows us that God is always in control. That even when things get bad and even when you get thrown into prison for righteousness' sake, God is in control and all things are going to work together for good. And uh, let's talk about our patriarchs a little bit. Um, If you want to see this breakdown, 12 to 25 is really about Abraham and Isaac. You know what Abraham and Isaac really teach us? They teach us and they illustrate walking with God. Because Abraham and Isaac were trying. They weren't perfect, but they were trying to walk with God. So Abraham and Isaac teach us and illustrate us a walk with God. Jacob and Esau, (laughs) they illustrate a walk without God. They are really not following God. And uh, 28 to 35 is the life of Jacob, and Jacob is the schemer, right? Like a lot of us, right? The scheming saint, you know, just trying to manipulate things and get what we want, do we want. I want you to go to Genesis 36, though. This is really interesting. Genesis 36 is all about the generations of Esau. Now, Esau is not a good guy in your Bible. He represents many things. And Esau represents one thing he represents. He represents a carnal Christian because he was a man of the field. He was a man of the world. And some Christians are very worldly. And Esau represents a worldly, carnal Christian. And I want you to notice something that God teaches us in Genesis 36. Why I'm in 1 Samuel, I have no idea. Genesis 36, you just start flicking because you're nervous here. Genesis 36 is the genealogy and the legacy of a carnal Christian. And I want you to notice that there is nothing written about any of them. They're just named and named and named and named. Some of them are Dukes. Some of them are Joe Schmoes that you worked with next to in the office. And none of them have any inheritance listed. None of them get anything recorded that any of them did. You know why? Because a carnal Christian is going to have nothing written and nothing to inherit when you stand before God. The only person that has anything written about him is right there in verse 24. 
And in verse 24, one of these descendants of Esau, the Bible says, and these are the children of Zibion, both Aja and Anna. This was that Anna that found the mules in the wilderness as he fed the asses of Zibion, his father. The only person that has anything recorded about anything they did was somebody that took care and fed some asses. The ass is the type of the lost man. You say, you want to get some kind of inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ? What are you doing with the food that God gave you and the lost world all around you? Everybody in Genesis 36 has nothing written. What a shame it... I told you I'd get some preaching in. What a shame it would be to get to the judgment seat of Christ and have lived your life as a carnal Christian. And I don't think I'm dealing with too many here, but any of us can slip up and mess up. But a carnal Christian stands in front of Jesus Christ and there is nothing to give you. There is nothing written, nothing for you to be rewarded. Only that one guy who fed some asses had something said about him. That's very, very instructive. And that's the legacy of a carnal Christian right there in 36. And then 37 to 50 is the life of Joseph. He has one of the longest narratives in the Bible next to Jesus Christ. He is one of the purest types of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some have said over 150 details, Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. Maybe maybe the one after him, the next closest type is maybe Daniel. But Joseph is by far the clearest and purest type of Jesus Christ. So we see so much said about him and his story. But he also, on a practical level, shows us how to deal with the brethren. Because sometimes the brethren will betray you, backstab you, throw you in a pit, and leave you there and try to use you. And Joseph's a good illustration of what to do. Don't seek vengeance. Just keep serving God, and he'll take care of you. So that's like an overview. But now let's get into some more practical things. So I gave you some vital statistics, a, a basic breakdown. Let's get into now some Bible pictures. Like what are some pictures? The Bible is a picture book. The Bible gives us everything for our learning, our admonition, right? Uh, So let's go to Genesis 1, and let's get our... I've got about three or four pictures in our Bible here. Let's look at the first great picture. Picture number one that we see in the book of Genesis. We see a great picture of man in his sinful state. In fact, Genesis 1, verses 1 to 4, actually preaches... You could preach this at the rescue mission. It has the gospel in it. It shows us so much. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. I want you to notice that that is an amazing picture I hope some of you can see it, of man in his sinful state. Because what does 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You were created by God. The universe was created by God. And you know what God made it? He made it good. (laughs) He made it innocent. He made it pure. Why? Because the Bible says God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. 1 John 1-5 tells us that. But what happens in the universe is what happens in your life. You went from that innocent little baby sitting in the bassinet to that dastardly devil lying to your parents and sneaking out on Friday night. And the Bible, just verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, 
and darkness was upon the face of the deep. You know what happens in verse number 2? That universe is plunged into darkness by sin. You know what happened to your world? It was plunged into darkness by sin, because that's what sin does. It just turns you and leads you into darkness. So what does God do? He did to the universe what He does in your life. The Bible says, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God starts moving into your life. God starts moving across your life like God started moving in the universe. And you know what He shows up as? He says, let there be light. You know what God did? He sent Jesus Christ into your world to save you. And that was the light back there. That light is God Himself. That light is Jesus Christ that was shining there in the beginning. And just like Jesus Christ shows up in the universe to restore a fallen creation, He showed up in your world to restore a fallen sinner. Amen? Amen? What a blessing. And then look what happens. You get saved or you're saved, say amen. Amen. Verse number 4, look what God says. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. You know what he does after you get saved? God draws a line and says, you should be different now from the darkness I took you from. There should be a difference in you. And you see that right there in verse 4. What a book, huh? It's like God wrote this book. I'm still in awe about it, right? From creation to sin to the light and then the difference and the separation you should have from the wicked world. That's picture number one, man in a sinful state. Let's look at picture number two. Look at Genesis chapter three. Picture number two is the devil's attack on the church. We see that pictured in Genesis three, the devil's attack on the church. We know what happens in Genesis three. Eve is sitting there staring at the trees. She's doing some shopping. And uh, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. A serpent was like those guys that stand around in Costco that try to get you to buy, like, solar panels, right? Now the serpent was more subtle. I hate those guys. I think those guys are of the devil. I'll go to the next aisle. My wife's like, just tell them no. I'm like, no, I'm afraid of them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go all the way around the store just not to pass them, right? Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. You say, Pat, how do you see that that is a picture of the devil's attack on the church? Hold your place in Genesis 3 and go to 2 Corinthians 11. Here's a good cross-reference to look at. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. All right. Very, very important verse that establishes this picture. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He's saying the same way the devil got Eve, the devil's going to try to get you, church. And if you flick back to Genesis 3, you'll see the same word beguiled is used. After the fall, after she's been corrupted in Genesis 3.13, look what she says. 13, interesting verse, right? And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. So Eve is a type of the church and the serpent is trying to beguile the church, like he beguiled Eve. Now, if you want to do an interesting study, study the word beguiled in your Bible. 
every time beguiled shows up in the Bible, it has to do with sexual sin and sexual defilement. So the lesson here is this, and I'm not going to get into all that right now, but the same way Satan defiled Eve's body in the garden, he's saying, don't let the devil defile your mind. He got to her body, don't let him get to your mind. He can't get to your body now, right? But he he can get to your mind. He can get up here. So he's saying the same way he infiltrated the woman's body and defiled her body, he can defile your mind, church. And he did the same thing. He beguiled her out of what God said. And he'll beguile you out of what God said. And if the devil can't get you to go to his church, he'll get you to go to one with his Bible. That's how he rolls, right? He wants to take the Word of God from you, take the Word of God from you. He doesn't care if you walk into a building and sing some songs and get some kind of little buzz that goes through your mind. He doesn't want you to have the book that God wants you to have because it's this book that has all the power to change your life. So he beguiled Eve out of the command that he gave them then, and he's going to beguile the church out of the Word that he saved us and preserved for us now. That's a great illustration. I get that out of the book of Genesis. Now, Genesis 4 is our third picture. Our third picture is God's way versus man's way. It's like a Sunday school lesson, but it's pretty good. God's way is in Abel, who pictures Christ. Man's way is Cain, who's following the devil. And Cain was what? You know it. Cain was a tiller of the ground. Cain represents man's way. Cain represents salvation by works. The fruit of his own hands. The fruit of his own labor. Abel was a keeper of the sheep. He represents God's way. Salvation by the lamb's blood. You realize there's only two ways to heaven. God's way or man's way. There's only two churches in the world, God's church and all the devil's churches. There's only two plans of salvation, God's way and all the other ways. It's either by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that's what Abel was following, the blood of the lamb, or it's pick whatever work you want, an eightfold path, five pillars, uh, stations of the cross, uh, you know, pick whatever plan of, but every plan that man devises is a works-based salvation. The biblical plan is a faith-based salvation. And that's where God draws the line between His way, which is by grace through faith, amen, and man's way, which always, whether it's atheism, evolutionism, uh, hedonism, Hinduism, it's always, I've got to do something to appease God or the gods, whereas God says, I did something to appease my own wrath. And that's the big difference. Now, Genesis chapter 5, I got just a couple of pictures left. Genesis 5 is our next picture. It's a picture of the rapture in the figure of Enoch, right? Enoch is a great type of the church. He's the only man who never died. Elijah dies in the tribulation. Moses died and will die again. Just let you know that. All right, Uh, Jesus Christ died. Enoch never died. That picture is you, right? Because if you're alive, when that trumpet sounds, you will never die. You will never die. Enoch chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There's that picture of a catching away, a picture of the rapture, a picture of our translation from this life to the next. Amazing. All, and then what happens in chapter 6? Then we got the flood, which pictures the tribulation. 
So all these people running around out there saying, there is no rapture, uh, we're going through the tribulation, church, get your powdered food and your bottled water, and man up, don't be such a wuss and wait for the rapture. You are such an nincompoop when it comes to the Bible, I can't even answer you sensibly. To think that the church is going through the tribulation is the height of folly. You have no idea how the Bible is put together. You say, where do you get that from? I don't have to go five chapters and Enoch shows me that there's going to be somebody caught out and taken out before the flood comes. You know what that is? That's me. And that's you if you're saved. Because I'm in the book of life. I'm never going to die in Jesus Christ. I'm in picture in Enoch. Hebrews 11.5 says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So Enoch is a great picture of the rapture of the church. And then, what's our next picture? It's our next chapter. Genesis chapter 6. It is a picture of the tribulation. Because Noah is a type of Israel who is protected during the flood. I like to preach Noah. Sometimes they say good doctrine doesn't make good preaching. And I'll preach about the Ark of the Salvation. And we'll, Danny, many, many months ago, did a great uh, nursing home lesson on the Ark as a picture of the salvation. And that's good preaching, but that's actually bad doctrine. Because Noah is really not connected to the church. Noah is a picture of Israel. He's not taken off the earth like Enoch is translated off the earth. He's kept on the earth and he's hidden and he's protected like the nation of Israel will be hidden and protected during the tribulation time. It's a great picture of it. Luke 17 tells us, as it was in the days of Noah so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. So when Jesus Christ comes back and that tribulation comes before He returns, we're going to see a flood. Isaiah 54, let's go there. That's a good verse. Let's flip to Isaiah 54. This is a good cross-reference. Isaiah 54. Am I making any sense so far? I know it's, this has really become Bible study. We're going to really study the Bible. I'm going to try to give you the Bible in a way that you could digest it, break it apart, and get like a rough outline of it. So I hope you re-listen or jot stuff down or see Rachel to copy her notes. Um, Isaiah 54, I need to look at them too, Rachel, when you're done. Isaiah 54, verse number 8, really establishes Noah's connection to the tribulation time. In a little wrath, this is God speaking, in a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment. That language is always connected to the tribulation. God hiding his face from Israel in a little while. Jesus used that expression a lot. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer, for this, and that this goes back to that little moment, that wrath that he hides his face from his people, for this, this little wrath when I hide my face, is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more grow over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. So the Israel is going to go through a flood. They're going to go through a trying time like Noah did, but God will deliver them and protect them. It's a great picture of the tribulation and Israel being protected during the flood. Now go back to Genesis chapter 9, and let me give you your next picture. I got two more quick ones, and then a couple more points here. Genesis 9. So the flood happens. And and let's get our timing down, right? Rapture, tribulation, millennium. So what is Genesis chapter 9 a picture of? Our next picture, it's a picture of the millennium. 
Genesis 9 pictures the millennium. How do I know that? Number one, it's after the flood. Now, what's the millennium? That's God's kingdom coming to earth. That's the stuff we talked about last week. The kingdom of heaven and then actually the kingdom of God converging together on the earth and God finally having his kingdom on earth that he always wanted to have. And you're going to have, how do I know it's the millennium? Genesis 9 is after the flood and the millennium comes after the tribulation, right? Number two, the ark rested upon the mountains. It was a time of rest and the millennium is a thousand years of rest. We won't even get into that the mountains of Ararat were the top of the land grant of Eden originally. That was top there. And that triangle that that land grant makes actually is a picture of the universe. We won't go into all that. Some of you are just like, really? Next time, next time. All right? <laughs> and in Genesis 9, what is it? It's a new world we're coming into. And it's a new government that we're coming into. God starts giving Noah laws. You kill somebody, you're going to be killed. That's what's going to happen the millennium. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And if you step out of line, a righteous judge is going to bust you. It's not going to be like, you know, you're going to cop a plea. He's got a rod of iron that'll reach the whole world and he'll crack you. So Genesis 9 pictures the millennium. And in Gen- here's our last picture. And then I want to just give you a couple of big ideas from the book of Genesis. Uh, our last picture. So I've given you a bunch of pictures here. First picture, man in a sinful state. Second picture, the devil's attack on the church. Third picture, God's way versus man's way. Fourth picture, the rapture. Fifth picture, the tribulation. Sixth picture, the millennium. And the seventh picture, <laughs> number seven, uh, Genesis 12 to 22, pictures Abraham, the friend of God. And we see the growth of a spiritual man it pictured in Abraham. We see him grow. Say, Pat, how do we see Abraham grow? Abram, who became Abraham, don't, don't get mad at me. How do I see him grow? In Genesis 14, you know how you can tell by somebody grows? By what they're willing to give. Right? If you put two nickels in the offering, I get a sense of how big your God is. I get it. Right? But if you're willing to kind of put something in there or give some of your time or give some of your talents, you know what? The more you give, the more we can measure your growth. I'm not a fruit inspector, but I could tell, you know, somebody that's willing to lay down their lives and sacrifice time and sacrifice blood, sweat, and tears to see God's work continue and souls get saved and saints get fed. You know what that tells me? Wow, that person's growing spiritually. And in Genesis 14, we see Abram's first offering. He gave tithes to Melchizedek. And the tithe is like, it's like you're almost like your obligation. It's kind of like the lowest form of giving, right? Like your tithe is, is like, you know, let me just do my math and there's my tithe, right? I'll just give like my bare minimum. That's my tithe. I see Abram giving that in Genesis 14. But then I see a little bit later in Genesis 18, He's offering something voluntarily, right? Those angels show up with God and he says, ooh, 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 let me go make a feast and prepare a morsel of bread. And that morsel of bread was, that was some morsel of bread. He lays out a feast for the Lord. You know what that shows me? Abraham's starting to grow a little bit. Then I read a few more chapters. Number three, he gets to Genesis 22 and he's willing to sacrifice his son. You know what that shows me? That shows me a picture of, of the growth of a spiritual man. You're a child of Abraham. You have faith in God. Praise the Lord. You start by just, you know, giving the bare minimum. 
And then you start giving a little more voluntarily when you don't have to. And then when you get to the place of Abraham, if you ever do, you're willing to lay down the most precious thing in your life, like God the Father laid down the most precious thing to him. Those are seven pictures in the book of Genesis. And I'd like to finish tonight with three big ideas from the book of Genesis. Three big ideas. Should I leave this up or should I erase this? Erase it? You said it, so I'm going to do that. All right. So if you need the notes, like I said, you see Rachel. All right. All right. So let's get some, let's get some big ideas. Big ideas. Meaning, like, I don't want to say themes. That's going to sound like an English class. I'm going to say big ideas. Big things that the book of Genesis kind of teaches. Here is number one. First big idea. God divides. Can't get away from it. The world wants to get everybody together and just have everybody sing Kumbaya. That is not God. Just go back to the Tower of Babel. God divides. The world wants to make everything one, everyone one. In fact, that's what they're saying in the book of Genesis 11. It says the people is one, but it was a false unity. And the world is trying to cram this unity down your throat, this false unity that ultimately has to be preserved by the end of a barrel of a gun. Only force is going to keep you in line eventually. And in Genesis 1, verse 4, go back to Genesis with me if you could, please. Let me show you some of the things that God divides. All right? Genesis 1, 4. Right? First thing God divides is God divides light from darkness. You see that in Genesis 1, 4? God divided the light from the darkness. Can I tell you, folks, the entire Bible, the entire plan of God, the entire everything could be summarized in one sentence, light versus darkness. The whole Bible is about light versus darkness. And God divides the light from the darkness. Not like Eastern philosophy. Eastern philosophy does the yin-yang. Right? The yin-yang symbol is very trendy. Some people get it tatted up on their head, whatever it is. Right? You know what that yin-yang is? That yin-yang is Eastern mysticism. You have a little bit of black and a little bit of white and a little bit of white and a lot of black. And what that yin-yang is supposed to do, it's supposed to spin. And when it spins, it just becomes one big mesh of gray. And that's what the devil's doing to the world. He just wants to dull all the lines and spin you so fast that everybody's just in this one mongrel race of people, indiscriminate, boys are girls, girls are boys, right is wrong, wrong is right, up is down, left is right, you know, bitter is sweet, sweet is bitter, evil is good, good is evil. And God says, no, 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 I'm a divider. I draw lines between things. And in Genesis 12:1, I'll show you another thing he divides. Not just light from darkness, Genesis 12.1. Let me read it with you. Genesis 12.1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. You know what God divides also? He divides people. He says, I want my people to be separate from all the other people. I don't want you to dress like they dress. I don't want you to listen to the music they listen to. I don't want you to think the way they think. I don't want you to booze the way they booze. I don't want you to party the way they party. I don't want you to calculate the way they calculate. You're supposed to be different. God says, you want to get to the promised land, Abram? Get up and go to where I want you to and leave your kindred behind. 
That's tough, but that's what God says. I want you to be different. What did Jesus say in Matthew 10, 35? He said, I am come to set a man at variance. That's at odds with his father and his mother and his brother and his sister. Some of us are like, yeah, amen, I've experienced that, right? Right? Amen. We've all, right? We've all experienced that, right? We've all experienced that, right? Just some of us have been like outcast. I've been cursed at, spit at, who? By family, right? It's just like the way it is. I don't, we're not crying in our beer, but God called you. He says, I want you to be different than the other people all around you, right? We're good? All right, keep going with me now. Uh, go to Hebrews chapter 4 now. Go to Hebrews 4. Let me show you some more things God divides. Hebrews 4, look at verse 12. Oh, yeah. We are doing good. Hebrews 4, 12. Hebrews 4, 12. The Bible says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, that's one group, and of the joints and marrow, that's the other group, that's the physical, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know what God's word is? Just like it was in the beginning, God's light separated light and darkness. You know what God's word does? God's word is a divider. God's word will separate, right? And wants to separate, I guess I should erase this, your soul and spirit from your sinful flesh. And when you get saved, that's what God does. He does an operation without hands when the Holy Spirit of God comes in and actually cuts your soul and your spirit away from your sinful body. Colossians 2 talks about the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh. It actually separates your soul from your flesh so that your soul no longer is defiled by the works of the flesh. In the Old Testament, the Bible would say, this man touched a dead body. And in some places it would say, the soul touched a dead body. How does a soul touch anything if the soul is on the inside? But if your soul is attached to your body, God can use it interchangeably like He does in the Old Testament. So how does God secure you and make a place for Himself to live inside of you where, you can, where sin and the wicked one can never touch? The Holy Spirit comes in and... Performs a spiritual circumcision and separates your soul and your spirit from your joints and your marrow so that flesh cannot touch that place where God abides. Amen. And that's God's a divider. He's dividing something. And let's do one more. Second Timothy. Well, we don't we could turn there if you want, but you could turn there to go to Second Timothy 2. If God is a divider, then you've got to be able to divide that Bible. 2 Timothy 2.15. Go there with me. 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If God is a divider, then and you want to study that Bible and not be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to have to recognize the divisions God put in that Bible. That the Jew is not the Gentile, and the Gentile is not the church, and the kingdom of heaven is not the kingdom of God, and the Old Testament is not the New Testament, and salvation over here is not salvation over there, and you know what I'm doing in this dispensation is not that dispensation. That's not cutting your Bible up. That's studying to show yourself approved unto God. You say, but it's all just God. No, God is a divider. 
And if I'm going to understand the Bible, I've got to rightly divide the word of truth. That's so much of what Bible study is, recognizing what God is doing and the contrasts and the context. Why? So you can get truth from it. Man, there's going to be people that come to the judgment seat of Christ and they're going to be so ashamed that they could have learned so much about God, but they never took the time to kind of see how God laid it out and they just made this one big mush of marshmallow fluff out of their Bible and they didn't understand it and they misapplied it and they thought this and they thought that and God's going to say, you're going to be ashamed. He says, you don't want to be ashamed? Rightly divide the word of truth. The book of Genesis is a great lesson. That's my first big idea. My first big takeaway from the, from the book of Genesis is that God divides. Light from dark, people from their homes, soul and spirit from joints and marrow, and he tells you to rightly divide the word of truth. Okay? Let me give you my second big idea. I only got three, and the last one's really short. So, number two. They're simple, too. Simple things to remember. God divides. This one's going to seem so academic, you're going to get insulted. And sin destroys. That is a lesson we get from the first book of the Bible. That sin destroys everything it touches. Go to Genesis again. I'm going to lay it out for you right here. Genesis 1. You want to see it? I'll show it to you real quick. Do some low-level flying here. Genesis 1. What was God's original plan? God's original plan was to establish a kingdom of sinless beings like himself. That is God's plan. That is God's prime directive, to establish a kingdom of sinless beings like himself that he can live and enjoy with forever. That's jump. We didn't get past go and somebody was already messing up. Genesis 1.1, you see it right in front of you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God's original creation was perfect. God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. I don't see anything wrong with Genesis 1.1. We could explore this further, but Genesis 1.1, we'll just take this right now, is God's original, perfect creation. And look at verse 2. And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. You say, what happened between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2? Oh, 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 I know what happened. Sin happened. Not your sin, and not Adam's sin, Lucifer's sin happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. You get that from a bunch of other places, but Lucifer's sin brought judgment on the universe. Now the universe is plunged into darkness, and there's this chaos now. It wasn't there in verse 1, but it's there in verse 2, because somebody, i.e. Lucifer, and a bunch of angels that followed him in rebellion, that sin destroyed what was once beautiful that God had made. Sin destroys everything. You don't get past verse 2 without learning that lesson. You say, Pat, well, how could we know for sure that there was really a judgment in verse 2? Well, God requireth that which is past. You know you can learn things by precedence God sets? Let's compare something, shall we? Just, just take this in. We, got, we had uh, Genesis 1-2. Let's call that like, we call it Lucifer's Flood if we want. You can call it whatever you want. Call it Fred's Flood, but it was Lucifer. All right, in Genesis 6, right, we had the Flood of Noah. You know, if we compare them, you learn something really good here. Who came after Lucifer's Flood? Adam, right? And then Noah did, right? After the Flood here. Watch this. Noah 
Well, Adam has three sons, right? Uh, we can discuss Cain later, but let's just call him Cain, <laughs> Abel, and Seth, right? Noah had three sons too, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. One of their sons was a bad boy. Cain was bad, Ham was bad. Okay, keep going with me now. Ham, Cain, murders his brother. Ham molests his father. Keep going now. Adam eats of the vine, he gets in trouble. Noah drinks of the vine, and he gets in trouble. A lot of parallels here, ready? Adam is commanded to replenish the earth. Noah is commanded to replenish the earth. Ergo, Noah comes in after a flood. Adam comes in after a flood. They're the same in all these areas, which means they must have both been coming out of a judgment. God is laying that out for you so you can see the similarities and you could say, wow, just like Noah was coming through a judgment, Adam was coming through a judgment. I didn't get that from the Greek and the Hebrew. I got that from just reading the Bible and saying, wow, God, look what you laid out there. Two people so similar. I wonder if they had a similar thing in their past. Yeah, they both were coming into a new world after a judgment of God because of sin. And if you go to John 1.5, I'll just nail it home for you here. Here's how you know definitively that that wasn't just a physical thing happening in Genesis uh, chapter 1. John 1.5. This is the verse that nails it home for me. Right? Let's, go, let's read John 1.1 1, 1 to 1.5. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the meeting with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness. That's a reference to Genesis 1. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. If I turn the lights off, the darkness doesn't go, what's going on? If it was just physical darkness, we wouldn't be talking about comprehension. That is a spiritual darkness that's at work there because it doesn't understand what God is doing. There's a sentience there. It's a spiritual darkness in the beginning that was the result of sin. Go back to Genesis with me now. So we got Genesis 1. God makes something perfect. By the second verse, it's destroyed. And then what happens? Verses 1, 3... To 31, right? If you, just, if you just lay them out, Genesis 1, 3 to 31, God is recreating or restoring and remaking the world and the earth for man to rule. If you look at verse 26, he says it right there. And God said, let us make man in our image, that's spiritual, after our likeness, that's physical, and let them have dominion. God wanted Adam to be a king over both of those kingdoms. The kingdom of God, spiritual, that's the image, and the kingdom of heaven, likeness, that's the physical. Adam was supposed to rule over both. What happened? Sin happened. The same thing that happened to Genesis 1, 1, 1, 2. Sin destroyed everything. By Genesis 3, the kingdom of God is gone because the spirit of God is gone. The image of God is gone. And God starts passing the kingdom of heaven down to other people. He tries to get Noah going. Noah gets drunk. He starts passing it down, keeps moving on. By Genesis 6, man's wickedness and failure brings on a flood. By Genesis 11, 
Man's imagination leads to confusion. What were they trying to do with the tower? Get better reception for their TVs? No. They were trying to call the sons of God down again. They were trying to make contact with those evil angels again like they knew before the flood in Genesis 6. They were twisted and wicked. Man's imagination was wicked. So God had to disperse them. And then we get into Genesis 12. God starts calling out a family. And they've all got their mistakes. None of them are perfect. Well, Abraham grabs a wife from Egypt because he doesn't want to believe God. Those people are still plaguing the Israelites unto this day, the Ishmaelites. Isaac gets afraid like his daddy. Jacob is a schemer of schemer and a deceiver. And Jacob's boys plot to get rid of their brother. Sin is destroying everything. And then we get to the end of Genesis. Go to the last verse of Genesis, chapter 50, verse 26. It nails it home. Genesis 50, verse 26, what the Bible says. Look at the end. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis began, in the beginning, God. The book started out right. The book started with God, which is always right. But you know, the book of Genesis ultimately shows us the wages of sin is death. Because the book that started with in the beginning God ends in a coffin in Egypt. It ends with death in the world. And it shows us that sin destroys everything. But lastly, go to Revelation chapter 22. Here's my last big takeaway. First big idea was, God divides. Second big idea was sin destroys. Book of Genesis is a painful illustration of that. Just failure after failure after failure, which leaves them in a coffin in Egypt. And we pick it up next week, Lord willing. We're going to see a people in bondage in Egypt, which is a picture of a people in bondage because of sin. And in Revelation 22, the last thing we get out of Genesis is this, that the Lord will deliver. The Lord will finish what he started. And the Bible is a circle. You know that? The Bible is a circle. It ends where it begins. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, God starts with a garden and a tree of life. You know, by the time God, by the time, beep, let's try that again. Take three. By the time God finishes this whole thing up, God's going to end in a garden with a tree of life. Revelation 22, verse 14, we're heading out into eternity And he says right there in Revelation 22, 14, Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. God starts with a garden and tree of life and God fulfills his plan and gets us right back. Paradise lost becomes paradise restored. And God is going to fix everything that was broken. And God's going to get us back to his original plan, which is to populate the universe with a kingdom that never ends and sinless people like himself that want to fellowship and enjoy him forever. And the book of Genesis starts one way and gets us back in the book of Revelation. And God is going to fulfill his plan. And that's just some thoughts out of the book of Genesis. Hopefully some things that can help you there. There's plenty of things. You want to ask me why they have to eat from the tree of life? 
I'll do that another time. But there's a lot to the book of Genesis that we obviously didn't cover. We could spend weeks on it. But hopefully that gives you enough of an outline and a framework that you get some big ideas that you could flesh out on your own and kind of give you a framework so you understand how it's broken down. And Lord willing, next week we'll continue with the book of Exodus. Let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer.